You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you so much, Keisha. That is going to be a great weekend, well-designed. We will get to see a lot of one another that we wouldn't ordinarily, but in a safe setting. So looking forward to that weekend, although Allison and I may be gone. Lord willing, we'll uh, be in the mountains with our family, but we'll be praying about that all the way. Um, I just want to say, if this is your first time here at Grace, we are so glad that you're able to be with us. If you're watching online, especially from the area, uh, we thank you very much for uh, choosing to worship with us this day. Uh, I'm so grateful for the guys that preached over the summer every other weekend. David, Ricky, and Jeff were preaching, and the Lord blessed all of us through those messages. Uh, David's message a few weeks ago from uh, the Old Testament from Micah 6-8 was such a blessing. I was trying to I meant to say that last week, and it never found its way into the message, but a well done. Anytime David talks about Hesed from the Old Testament, you know it's going to be good. But there's much truth for all of us in this series that we're going through. I want to say that somewhere around 15 years ago, it seemed to me that it would be good to preach from Romans 6 to 8 every so often in the fall. When we begin our new church years, the school year, beginning of the school year, new church year. Why Romans 6 to 8? In fact, I decided that we should do it maybe every other year. And if I decide we're going to do it every other year, we'll do it every six years. Uh, So it's been that long since the whole section has been done. But why are these chapters so important? When I was a young believer... I heard a number of experienced expositors of the word say that if you understand Romans 6 through 8, then you're going to understand, you're going to get how the Christian life works. You'll know how it is that God helps us to grow spiritually. And after all these years, I have to say that I agree with that that assessment with one caveat, and that is, In order to get the most out of Romans 6 through 8, you need to understand the truth at the end of the second half of Romans 5. Uh, Scholars debate whether Romans 5 belongs to the first four chapters of Romans or chapters 6 through 8. The answer is both, most likely. And I, I will say that though, that what we learn today will have an enormous bearing on what comes in the next few weeks, which will be extremely practical. Now, I'll probably say that three or four times. It's really going to be practical in the next three, four, five weeks because it's going to be foundational today. We have to understand what is being said in the verses that Jeff has already read, a few of those verses this morning, before we can really take off and make application. It's like reading history. Probably a lot of you would read more history if you would read more of the book that you're reading. Any great history 
is boring as get out for the first one or 200 pages. And then all of a sudden it takes off. Well, that's the way it is with scripture sometimes. Persevere. We don't, we're not conditioned to persevere in our lives today. Because everything can be seen in 140, 280 characters, whatever the latest is. But you're going to have to hang with the best stuff if you're going to get everything that you should be getting. So today's text, Romans 5, 12 to 21. This morning's message falls under the summer series category of conformed to the image of God's son, Jesus. The title of today's message is Two Families. All of us belong in one of two families, either Adam or Jesus. We're going to put Adam over here and Jesus over here. So hopefully I will remember that. We all belong to Adam's family at one time. But when we put our faith in Jesus' sacrifice, his substitutionary death on the cross, then we were taken out of Adam's family and adopted into Jesus' family or to God's family. And the fact that we were adopted ought to tell you something about the origins of our faith. There is no way to adequately explain the full truth of Romans 5, 12 through 21 in one sermon. And it is unlikely we will fully understand this truth before Jesus returns. But if we can just get a sense of what is being taught here, then we're going to discover new implications for the rest of our lives. So here are a few principles to follow. Before we dig into this text, we need to establish some ground rules. And here are four. The first is this. This text must not be separated from the greater context of Romans, especially chapters 1 through 11. Now, this is going to mean something to some of you. It won't mean as much to others. That's okay. It'll mean more later because it's just something I'm discovering these last two or three years. I've always thought of Romans 1 through 8 as a unit, Romans 9 through 11 as a unit, and then Romans 12 through 16 as a unit. Actually, I'm going backwards for you. 1 through 8, 9 through 11, uh, 12 through 16. But in the last couple of years, I've seen how very connected Romans 9 through 11, uh, those three chapters are to the first eight chapters. And what do the last five chapters mean if you don't have all of that in front of it? So we tend to pick and choose little text here or there, and we get lost because we don't know the greater context. Some of the Apostle Paul's language in this text is a bit unclear because he did he said it the way he did for a specific purpose that in our day, it's not always easy to understand. Some of the context uh, is going to be provided in home group notes this week. I will post both the, note, the questions and the leader's notes on faith life later this week. So you'll get a bit more of the context for the text if you hang with this all week. Second, all humanity belongs to Adam's family. But only those who believe in Jesus belong to God's family. And again, we didn't say, you know what? I think I'm just going to go over here. We were taken out of Adam's family and placed 
into Jesus' family. This will be extremely important to comprehend over the next several weeks as our understanding of our identity in Christ grows. That's what this series is about. Being conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus. This is how it all works. And it starts with this transfer of families. What does this mean? And how do we discern it in our lives? We're going to see. Third, the initial readers of Paul's letter to the Romans would have been amazed to realize that all people, including Jews and Gentiles, had the same curse because of sin and the same cure for sin. The, Jew, the Jewish people thought that, yes, indeed, the world is divided into two groups of people, Gentiles and then God's people, Jews. And if you wanted to get into this family, well, we're going to have to go through a long list and we're going to have to check it out and see whether or not you're worthy to be in this family. But now they're being told, no, we all are born in sin and the cure for that sin is the same for everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike. The Jews understood that Adam's sin affected us in some way, although not like we understand it, not exactly the same way. But if they were reading this letter, they were already breathless by this point in Romans because Paul has said in Romans 2 that being a Jew or a member of God's covenant family is a matter of the heart, not ethnic descent. It's not based on whether or not you're a Jew or not a Jew. It's based on faith. In Romans 9, he's going to say that not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. So that's important to know as we read through this text. Fourth, although Adam and Jesus represent the heads of two families, there is no comparison between them. Jesus got right what Adam got wrong. Okay, there's a comparison between Jesus and Adam, but only in that they represent two heads of families and that they were both human. Now, Jesus, of course, was both human and God. He had a divine nature, but he was also human. But that is where the comparison ends. This passage is mostly contrast. Jesus is greater than Adam, just as the creator is greater than creation. So, for those of you who are still awake, keep all these principles in mind as we examine Romans 5, 12 to 21, and as God's word examines us. Rather than reading the entire text right now, going to read it as we go. Uh, before we begin, though, would you please bow your heads in prayer with me? <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you for the truth that we are about to imbibe this morning. Um, we recognize that this is strong meat of the word. And even though it, it, it points to that which moves us from being in Adam's family to Jesus' family. It is quite 
complex, especially as we use and understand language in our day. So we pray that you would open our eyes, that, that the Holy Spirit would help us to see Jesus exalted and lifted up and our head according to your great plan, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have taken good notes through the year, you may see that I preached from this text four years ago. Little to none of what I said, though, is going to be repeated today. Although, <laughs> the truth is the same. Verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, in your Bible, before we read verse 13, you're most of you are going to have a little dash there. It's like Paul begins a thought and he doesn't complete it until well later in the text. <clears throat> he sort of moves sideways. So if you accuse those, if you accuse other people of going on rabbit trails, well, the Apostle Paul is their leader. And so I'm identifying with the Apostle Paul this morning since I go on rabbit trails. But Paul does, he shifts gears and he said, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. As John Stott says about verse 12, Adam was the door through which sin entered the world, and sin was the door through which death entered. So think about that. Adam was the door through which sin entered the world, and sin was the door through which death entered. And Michael Middendorf would say, obvious and overwhelming. Then, death spread to all men because all sin. So, here's the question, and we're going to be addressing this several times today. Do we <clears throat> die because of Adam's sin? Or because of our own sin. Individualists that we are. We do not want to be guilty of anyone's messes except our own. Hey look I, I, I'll take responsibility for myself. But I'm not taking responsibility. For someone else. Especially someone who. Lived. So many years ago. The truth Paul reveals here may be difficult to understand but this is it we sinned in Adam though we were not yet born we're going to see language in the next few chapters that is like we died with Christ when he died we were resurrected with Christ when he was raised from the dead by the way baptism was postponed from today until next week because we had to make that call much earlier in the week than we did whether or not we were going to have services. But we do plan to have baptism next week. And how appropriate that Romans 6 will be the text next week. And baptism is a picture of Christ dying and rising from the dead. We die to our sins. We're raised to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. That identity thing is a big deal in the New Testament and especially in Romans 5. 6, 7, and 8. 
So, again, we sinned in Adam even though we were not yet born. Hebrews sort of gives this idea when it says that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And we could say that Aaron actually paid tithes to Melchizedek even though he was not yet born. But he was in the loins of his ancestor, Abraham. So there is this corporate responsibility of all humanity. We die because we sinned in Adam. <clears throat> now verse 13 seems to indicate that all those between Adam and Moses were not held responsible for their sins. What is meant that Adam was given a specific command, a direct command, and he chose to disobey? The others had not received the direct command until the law of Moses. That doesn't mean that sin and death were absent though from Adam to Moses. Not only will both verses 12 and 13 become much clearer when we get to verse 16, <clears throat> but an obvious and important truth is shared in verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Transgression, by the way, Sin, uh, missing the mark, um, almost uh, there's a, one of the <laughs> definitions is a falling away from the right place, the fall. Adam's transgression was different from those others, but Adam was a type of the one who was to come. So the important thing to take from verse 14 is, is this, the, 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 the beginning, this is the beginning of the argument for two Federal heads of humanity or representative heads of humanity. All humanity is represented in Adam or in Jesus. Let's say it this way, represented by Adam or by Jesus. And we all get what one of those two offers. Sin and death, grace and righteousness. Adam was a type or a picture of the one to come. And then Adam and Jesus are contrasted in the next three verses. Look at verses 15 and 16 to begin with. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. <clears throat> and the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now, if you're just now reading that or hearing that, you're going, uh, exa not exactly sure. Let, let me, look, this is, a, this is a wholly inadequate analogy of, of the point that Paul is trying to make. He's talking about how much greater Jesus' righteousness is than, than Jesus' righteousness is than Adam's sin. Although it might be a little bit confusing because we know what the truth of Scripture tells us. All are condemned because of Adam. Some are justified because of Jesus. Paul is going to say all are, are condemned, all are justified by this way, but he doesn't mean every single human being. He makes it clear that it's those who receive the gift of life. But, but he's making the contrast of how much greater Jesus, what Jesus did is than what 
Adam did. I mean, we could say simply, look, it's far easier to do wrong than it is to do right, correct? I mean, that, that's one way to say it. But think of it like this, and again, a, a really inadequate analogy, but maybe it'll help. In one act, Adam pushed all of the toothpaste out of the tube. In one act, Jesus got all of it back in that was supposed to go back in. Which is more difficult? What Jesus did was so superior to Adam's act that it's hardly worth comparing. Even though Adam and Jesus are the heads of two families on earth, they could not be more different. Adam brought sin. Jesus brings righteousness. Adam brought death. Jesus brings life. Adam brought condemnation. Jesus' sacrifice brings justification. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So wait a minute. Is there hope after Adam did what he did after we are connected with Adam? Is there hope? If the sin of one can be attributed to many, then maybe the righteousness of one will be attributed to many. But all are all as all die, do all live? If Adam's act of disobedience led to physical and spiritual death for all, then does Jesus' sacrifice provide righteousness and life for all? Unfortunately, no. Well, I, I say unfortunately. Is there in your heart a desire for justice? It's in the heart of all of us. We desire justice. Where did that desire come from? From a God who is both just and justifier of the one who believes. Life comes to those who receive the free gift of righteousness. Keep this in mind as we read verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation, led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. That's where it's a little confusing here. But it's only confusing if we don't read it in context. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, again, these verses are very confusing if you don't read them in the greater context of Romans as a whole. Romans 1 teaches in no uncertain terms that the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness. Jesus' death, Romans 3, 21 to 26, though sat, Jesus' death satisfied God's wrath against sin for those who believe. In Romans 9 and 10, Paul is going to share his anguish of the lost condition of his brothers 
and sisters and his concern for those who have not heard the gospel, mostly Gentiles, because it is impossible to receive the free gift of life if you've never heard of the free gift of life. The point Paul is making in verses 18 to 19 is made clear in these last two verses of our text, Romans 5, 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the tres trespass. This is, this is again mind-blowing to the Jewish people. The law came in to increase sin. I thought it came in to reduce sin by telling us what's right and wrong and, uh, and us just acting in that way. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Although one sin led to the fall of all mankind and although our knowledge of right and wrong is increased by the law. One act of righteousness covered a multitude of ever increasing sin. So it's not just like that all the toothpaste is out of the tube. It's continually flowing. It just keeps growing. But Christ's sacrifice puts it all to rights for those who believe. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So, this is not an easy text, but it is an important one. I assure you, <coughs> excuse me, the truth that we're going to see over the next several weeks is going to be far easier to grasp and apply than today's text. But before we leave this text, it's important that we understand three ways that people misunderstand this text by misinterpreting what is being said. So three ways that people are confused about Romans 5, 12 to 21. The first is this. Only those who hear God's law or the gospel are responsible for their sins. Now, this false teaching comes from isolating the phrase at the end of verse 13. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Of course, to believe this teaching, if you just isolate that one little piece of this text and, uh, and of all the Bible, in order to believe it, you're going to have to ignore the ultimate consequence of sin, which is death. Try telling a police officer that you shouldn't be given a speeding ticket for going 100 miles an hour because you didn't see any speed limit signs. How's that going to work out for you? What about those who have never heard the gospel? Are they accountable? Well, look, this is a really hard, especially if you're a young Christian, this is a hard one. Romans 1 says that creation points to pe people to a creator, and that ought to be enough to move us in the right direction. Romans 2 says that our conscience does the same. We've already talked about this desire for justice that is in our hearts. All of these ought to point us toward the Lord. Thus Paul concludes in Romans 
For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That is why in Romans 10, Paul is filled. Paul is filled with such urgency to get the gospel to those who have not heard. This is one of those things that just it, it struck me recently. Romans 9. Look, you may interpret it another way. You may read it and say, yes, I believe this, but I don't think it's the way you understand it. It seems to indicate God saves us according to his will and we have nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing to do with it. But in Romans 9, very early on, he's praying, oh, I would do anything. I would count myself accursed. I would spend eternity in hell so that my brothers and sisters could be in heaven with God for eternity if he would only allow it. So Romans 9, it's like, well, we don't have anything to do with it. But then Romans 10 is like, look, if you don't share the gospel, they're not going to hear. How can they hear without a preacher? You've got to get out there and share <coughs> the word. So that is the responsibility that is on us. How does it work all together? I don't know. But you are not saved if somebody's not sharing this word with you. We have to share with others because so very much is at stake. If those who never hear the gospel are not countable for their sin, then my goodness, what is our best thing? What's the best thing to do? Keep our mouths shut about the gospel so that people will not be held accountable. Unfortunately, all are accountable. A second teaching that comes, and look, it's not so much you. There are a lot of people who have very sound doctrine that understand somehow God makes exception for those who have never heard in the same way that he makes exception for those who uh, are born before, I mean, die before they are old enough. So I'm not saying if you think that those who have never heard are somehow saved that you are, are guilty of heresy. But the idea that only those who hear are responsible for their sins is not borne out in Romans chapter 5 verses 12 to 21. And really all of Romans and all of the New Testament. Uh, a second wrong interpretation of this text is this. It is our personal sins that get us into trouble with God, not Adam's sin. These misunderstandings of Romans 5 are getting progressively worse. This one is tricky because it is both Adam's sin and my sin that condemn me. <clears throat> but without Adam's sin, then I have no sin. There is no personal sin. If Adam's sin has nothing to do with my relationship with God, if I am not born estranged from God, the thinking goes, then maybe I have a chance to clean up my act and make myself presentable to God. This was the view of a 5th century British monk named Pelagius who denied original sin and who believed 
that Adam was simply the first sinner and we have all followed his example. Pelagius believed that we have free will and while we, yes, we're in Adam's family, we can look over there and say, you know what? I can clean my act up. I can, I can make myself worthy of being in this other family. <clears throat> I can overcome my sin and achieve human perfection. Adam's sin only affected us as a bad example. Now, Pelagius believed a theology of glory rather than a theology of cross, of the cross. If you were just here for the first time, if you've not been here for the last several years, even if you have been, this understanding just kind of comes upon us one day. Um, even though you hear it many times, the theology of glory says that I am capable of making my way from Adam's family to Jesus' family. I can climb to heaven. I can make myself presentable to God. A theology of the cross says, no, you can't. If you're going to get over here, then I have to come to you. And Jesus indeed met us at the cross. We're not capable, so he <clears throat> made it possible for us to be in his family by believing that he died on the cross for us. Only by believing that Jesus died in my place can I receive the gift of righteousness. Praise, praise the Lord. The third misinterpretation, which is the most serious, is this. The entire human race is condemned in Adam, but the entire human race is saved in Jesus. But that is what the language of this text seems to imply, right? <clears throat> you could read it that way. If you choose to ignore the rest of Romans and the rest of the New Testament. As I've already stated, Paul's language is designed to highlight the huge chasm between Adam's sin and Jesus' righteousness and the amazing difference in what each of these two heads of all humanity, the two federal heads of the two families of earth, did. And that leads us to what we need to understand going forward. We're all born into Adam's family. By the way, Adam's family instead of Eve's family, even though Eve sinned first, and Scripture acknowledges that. But Adam was held responsible because he was designed to be the head of all humanity. That was his role. Thus, he was held responsible for sin, and we are all born into his family. The only way we become part of Jesus' family is through faith in the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. According to Romans 8, which we're going to get to, this happens through adoption. God adopts us into his family through Jesus. And adoption, as you know, happens when a parent decides to adopt a child. Now, there are deep and rich parallels with first century adoptions, but our understanding of adoption in our day will suffice. So believers, 
used to be in Adam's family, but when God saved us, we were removed from Adam's family and put into Jesus' family or into God's family. The Holy Spirit did this work. He took us out of one family, put us into another, and our entire identity has been changed. God's design for us now is that we look less and less like Adam and more and more like Jesus. How does this occur? Romans 6 is going to inform us that we do not have to sin any longer because we no longer are a part of this family, but we're a part of this family. Then when you read that, you could get pretty discouraged because you say, "Uh, I act like this sometimes and I act like this sometimes. Well, Romans 7 is going to explain that discrepancy. Although we are no longer in Adam, Adam hitched a ride with us. He's still in us until the day we are completely made like Jesus when we stand before him. Romans 8 is going to describe how the Holy Spirit alone can do the work of changing us and transforming us more and more into the image of Jesus. This is only the beginning of what we are promised in Romans 5.20. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I love the King James Version. Where sin abounded, grace abounded more. This is exceptionally good news. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, our hearts are full, even if our minds are not fully where our hearts are. We understand that your love for us is not based on anything good that we have done. In fact, we were all born heading astray, heading like sheep, astray, away from you. Until you rescued us and put us into your family. We thank you. We don't deserve it. We're so grateful that you loved us enough to send your son Jesus to die a death that absorbed the wrath of God that was directed toward us. And Lord, may we hide behind the cross as the Holy Spirit does His work in our lives, making us more and more like Jesus. We confess that we are far from where we should be and far from where we want to be. So we yield ourselves to you. And again, ask that the Holy Spirit do through us what we are incapable of doing ourselves. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission.
For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.